Hey folks, I'm Merrick Michael Smith, and on behalf of Formosa Files, I want to thank you all for hanging with us these last three seasons. And I want to welcome you to Season 4. A big thank you to our sponsor, the Frank Chen Foundation. This podcast would not exist without their support. And so, without further ado, let's get into the first episode of Season 4 in 2024. In the mid-1990s, the sleepy town of Lugang on the west coast of central Taiwan was the site of a battle between the environment and development. American petrochemical giant DuPont was given permission to build a titanium dioxide plant near Lugang, but the local people had other ideas. Over the next 15 months, opponents of the chemical plant fought a campaign which would shake the country and have far-reaching repercussions. The Taiwan History Podcast, Formosa Files, is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Frank C. Chen Foundation. Formosa Files. So in today's story, we're off to Lugang, a city of historical importance. The name, which means deer port, comes from its deerskin trade during the Dutch period. Two centuries ago, it was the second largest settlement after Tainan. In the late 19th century, the port silted up and the city fell into relative decline. And today, the population of the city and surrounding area is about 85,000 people. But that former glory and lack of modern development sounds good for visitors interested in history. And John, I believe you've been there. Yes, maybe four times. I still recall the disappointment of my first visit about 22 years ago. Oh, you were disappointed. Yeah, I thought this historically important town being shut off from development, that it would be something of a time capsule. But it was mostly concrete boxes, a few interesting buildings here and there. But you're not exactly stepping back in time. So, um, I guess it's fair to say you went there with overly high expectations. Yes. And over the years, I've blamed an old Taiwan Lonely Planet guidebook by Robert Story for this. But I dug out the old book this morning, and you be the judge. Uh, here's the section for Lugang. Okay. The entry reads, Lugang is mainly of interest to historians. For a glance at the past, wander through its narrow alleys. While there are many original buildings still standing, don't expect to find a perfectly preserved ancient Chinese village. The Taiwanese think Lugang is a major attraction, but most foreigners find it hard to get very excited about the few crumbling relics that remain there. <laughs> yeah, so I misremembered the book. Yeah, quite cynical Robert's story was. He stayed at my place a couple of times, and yeah, he had some great Lonely Planet war stories. But today we're not going to Lugang for its history or culture before a fascinating story about environmental activism. In 1986 and 1987, it was the battleground of probably the biggest story in Taiwan's environmental movement. Yes, and we're drawing primarily on an excellent book by academic James Redden Anderson. The book's called Pollution, Politics, and Foreign Investment in Taiwan, the Lugang Rebellion. Our story takes place in Taiwan in the mid-1980s. We've talked about this before, but the 80s were a period of fast growth, industrial growth, given priority over pollution. But in the mid-80s, things are changing. At the end of 1985, the American company, DuPont, is given permission to build a titanium dioxide plant. Okay, so first up, 
what is titanium dioxide? Um, I don't completely understand it, but it's some sort of mineral used in the petrochemical industry. Its most important function in powder form is as a widely used pigment for giving whiteness. It's used in products such as paints and coatings, papers, inks, and even cosmetics. Titanium dioxide is non-toxic, non-combustible, odorless, harmless, well, not entirely uh, risk-free. The plant would have to store large quantities of liquid chlorine, and the wastewater might also pose a danger to marine life along the coast. Mm, Any of us who have been to a public swimming pool know what liquid chlorine feels like. So why did DuPont want to manufacture titanium dioxide in Taiwan? For sales both in Taiwan and the region, and Taiwan was a cheap place for manufacture. Plenty of capable engineers, good workers at low salaries, and a supportive government. And another factor was that foreign investors weren't forced to do joint ventures like in China, so foreign companies could remain wholly foreign-owned and didn't need to share secret technologies, you know, their patents. The Taiwanese government wanted to have new investment, which would mean jobs and money for the economy. When you're withholding political freedoms, you want to be able to point to material success or, you know, um, a coup might happen. Yeah. So the KMT government and DuPont are keen for this new plant, which was at the time going to be the largest single foreign investment in Taiwan history. DuPont submits an application on August 1st, and get this, the Ministry of Economic Affairs approved it in 18 days. 18 days! (laughs) No need for an environmental assessment report back then? Well, there was an Environmental Protection Bureau, but it had very little power and less involvement. They didn't even know about the DuPont case. The head of the agency found out about the project's approval later on by reading about it in a newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, such complicated, stressful, time-consuming environmental assessments. Mm. Well, one of the reasons was that DuPont had a good reputation for safety in the world and in Taiwan, where there were already two other plants, although different kinds. And about that environmental assessment, it would have been hard to do. Okay, why is that? They got approval without having chosen a site. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. So DuPont made that decision later in the year. There were several places, all government-owned land. Right. So the final winner was the Changbing Industrial Zone, Jianghua Binghai Gongyechu, shortened to Jiangbing Gongyechu. I was looking at a Google map before we started, and the piece of land in question is, is very large, about three kilometers west of the city, or town, really, of Lugang. And it's almost an island, a man-made one off the coastline, a landfill off the coast of Jiangwa County. Yes, the government had spent a lot of money on building this industrial zone landfill island, uh, not yet finished it, and it was not being used, looking like a waste of money. So the government were very keen to sell it to someone. The forthcoming DuPont plant was announced in December of 1985. And then there was a huge outcry from the local people. Those in Lugang, other nearby coastal communities, also in Zhanghua County, 
and in the city of Zhanghua. It was a case of wrong place at the wrong time for Dupont. This project wasn't unusual and would normally have been built without hassle, but the people in Zhanghua were suffering from pollution from various industrial plants, in particular an infamous Taiwan chemical factory in Zhanghua City, uh, a subsidiary of the petrochemical giant Formosa Plastics. The population was angry about the dirty, dangerous, and stinky air. And there was a big incident that had happened recently overseas, the Bhopal disaster, which was a chemical accident in December 1984 at an American-owned pesticide plant in Bhopal, central India. It's considered the world's worst ever industrial disaster. Over 500,000 people around the plant were exposed to highly toxic gas. Over 2,000 died immediately and many more in the following months. And in Taiwan, there was growing environmental consciousness and a convergence of different groups, intellectuals and journalists, regular middle-class folks, and lower-class fishermen and farmers. And closer to home, there were a couple of incidents affecting the coastal fishermen. In March, there was the Green Oyster Affair. So this involved copper sulfate poisoning shellfish in southern Taiwan by emitting that copper sulfate into the sea. This caused oyster prices nationwide to fall by more than half. And if you've lived here, you know how much we love oysters. A few months earlier, there'd been some other case of of shellfish poisoning. The central western coast is lined with oyster farms and onshore fish farms as well with fish and eels. Most of the Lugang oysters were exported to Japan, so uh, quality was a real concern. Then on top of all these concerns, there's the factor of local pride. Many Lugang residents saw their home as being of great cultural significance. Once the second city of Taiwan after Tainan, and, you know, still upholding traditions lost elsewhere. Though it has to be said that this local idea of being special, different, well, it was more imagined than based on reality. Clinging to a myth of fading glory, uh, when it was a pretty standard small city. Although the leaders of the rebellion came from the city and many of their followers were city folk, the strongest support came from the maritime communities surrounding Lugang. And they were not elites, you know, not highly educated, but some of them had economic power. The Jianghua County Fishermen's Association had 12,000 members, and the area's fishing industry produced about 20 million U.S. dollars each year, the great majority of that, as you noted earlier, being exported to Japan. That was three times as much as the projected worth of the chemical plant. But the big difference was employment. Direct employment at the plant expected to be only two or three hundred local workers. Hmm, okay. So the main leader of the anti-DuPont movement was a local businessman, civic activist by the name of Li Dongliang. Li was a Lugang native, born and raised, a middle school dropout. He'd taken over the family store, which sold religious goods to locals and to tourists who came to worship at Lugang's noted old temples. Lee was 48 years old in 1986, and he'd just been elected to a minor position in local government. Apparently, he was tall, strong, handsome, a people person with charisma. He had the common touch. 
So quoting from the book uh, you mentioned earlier, John, the Lugong Rebellion, Lee greets everyone by name and is known to down six or seven bottles of rice wine in late night drinking parties that bond Taiwanese men and fuel their politics. Hmm. But he's not just a drinker and talker, though. He has done a lot for Lugang, uh, organizing an annual Lugang Folk Arts Festival, which had become a great success. This festival got national coverage and brought in tourists. He was a worthy son of Lugang, respected and liked by the townspeople. Okay, so compare Lee, small-town local guy, with what he's going to take on. Number one, a one-party state. At that time, Taiwan was a one-party state. And a big multinational chemical company. This is basically a David versus Goliath story. Yes, uh, David and two Goliaths, the government and DuPont. Hmm. Uh, and neither had bothered to consult with uh, local residents. Lee was the first to raise the alarm after seeing an article in the Taipei Press. Even the Zhanghua County Magistrate had not been told. He also read about it in a newspaper. Incredible. Yeah, the biggest foreign investment project ever in Taiwan. Yeah, yeah we're not going to mention it to anyone. So this Li guy and others in Lugang are concerned, but remember, this is martial law Taiwan. You can't protest without permission. And there's no experience, no example of successful opposition to such industrial developments. Lee's first move was to collect signatures on a petition opposing the DuPont plant. That's a very old Chinese tradition of petitioning. Not the collecting signature part, but to take your grievance to the court. Now, back in imperial China, poor schmucks out in the, the hinterland would uh, travel to Beijing to petition the emperor, you know. Oh, curse these corrupt local officials. If only the virtuous emperor and higher officials were informed, justice would prevail. Yeah, yeah you're right. Thousands of years of this tradition. So Lee got 16,000 signatures. Very impressive in an area with a population of about 77,000. So we're talking about the city and the surrounding area. And then Lee traveled around the Zhanghua area, giving presentations in communities. Uh, I sort of wonder if Lee knew what he was talking about when it came to the chemicals. Like, was he able to explain these chemicals? Well, he knew more than his audience, and he knew what worked. He would show pictures of the horrors of various chemical uh, poisonings unrelated to what DuPont was planning to do. Mm, I can understand that. It's not as if he could head down to his local library and ask, where are the books on industrial accidents involving titanium dioxide? You know, and of course, this is pre-internet. Yeah, yeah. There was another major figure in the protest movement, Lee's former classmate and a former schoolteacher, Nian Xilin. In many ways, he was the brains of the operation, the strategist, if Lee was the charismatic leader. Nian, and this surname is quite rare in Taiwan, Nian had worked as an elementary school teacher, but quit back in 1971. The next 15 years, he was involved in various failed ventures, drifting around Taiwan. The man himself admitted he'd lived an aimless life, a decadent life, including hanging out with gangsters. But in 1986, at the age of 47, he joined the fight, found his true calling as an environmental activist, and he would dedicate the rest of his life to this cause. So, uh, going back to Lee, he took the protest and petition to Taipei in March 1986. 
He delivered copies of his petition to the Executive UN, the Legislative UN, and the KMT headquarters, and then headed to DuPont, their office. Uh, forewarned, though, they invited him in. They didn't agree on much. Uh, DuPont was worried about all the disinformation and the DuPont company had a policy of keeping a low profile and letting the government handle things. Uh, This hadn't worked out. Uh, They'd need to win public support uh, to convince the opposition. So DuPont already had two factories in Taiwan, but they made electronics and fertilizer, so not exactly relevant. They needed a titanium dioxide plant, which they have in the U.S., So a tour is organized and come see, you know, check out our clean, safe plants. Lee, however, decided not to go. Yeah, he backed out at the last moment. He feared being accused of being bought off if he reported back favorably. So some people went, uh, a few officials and a journalist, they came back with favorable reports. Okay, fair enough. But I mean... How much can you really tell from a trip to a totally different country with totally different circumstances? I mean, uh. hey, I'd like a free trip somewhere (laughs) for most of files willing to report fairly on any chemical factories. (laughs) Okay, so a big day for the anti-DuPont movement was June 24th, six months after the announcement of the project. There was a demonstration in Lugang. Several hundred local residents took to the streets, and this is in defiance of martial law, the largest gathering since the Kaohsiung Incident of 1979, and at this point, the leaders of the Kaohsiung Incident are still in prison. Under martial law, any assembly of more than 10 people required official approval. The second half of June was the Lugang Folk Arts Festival, which had a political edge to it this year, with anti-pollution posters and murals, many done by the local school kids. News had come through the night before, on June 23rd, that television crews would arrive to film the festival. So national media, a chance to publicize the anti-DuPont movement. There was a meeting at Lee's home. The question was, should they take to the streets, an element of danger for themselves, but above all for the movement, and uh, if they did so, would they possibly alienate the public? But petitioning the authorities hadn't worked, right? Time was slipping by, so they had to take action, but as secretly and as carefully as possible. So they're going to protest illegally. For this, 300 t-shirts were printed with the slogan, Wo ai Lugang, buyao dupang. So I love Lugang, don't want dupont. Uh, the ink was still wet when dawn broke. A nice, concise slogan. I like it. So journalists were contacted from as far away as Taipei and told, be in Lugang tomorrow morning. 9.30 in the morning, between 500 and 1,000 demonstrators assembled in front of the Wenwu Temple. They waited for camera crews to arrive and then proceeded along the main street, shouting slogans, waving banners, plenty of onlookers lining the streets. Uh, And this protest group, they marched to the main Mazu Temple. After being filmed, they put away the banners and dispersed. The police had not intervened. The TV coverage was played that evening, that night. The media, not as strict as you would have thought, there was actually coverage of this in newspapers the next day. Yeah, Taiwan was authoritarian, but changing. Much freer than the PRC is today. 
The Zhongguo Shibao, or China Times, a leading paper, ran a favorable editorial, blaming quote-unquote pent-up bitterness over the government's neglect of the environment. And many academics were also sympathetic, as well as some NTU students. These students spent the summer in Lugang recording and supporting the movement. So sympathetic press coverage and overall public opinion was with them. The idea that development had been followed too much over environmental concerns. There were some elite Lugang locals who supported the proposed DuPont plant, but they kept quiet. I think they didn't know what to make of the protests, which were something new. Uh, you know, why stick your neck out if the government and DuPont itself were not fighting back? Yeah, which brings up the government not being heavy-handed. Premier Lu Guohua was not confrontational by nature, and yeah, he didn't want to rile public opinion. And then we have an aging President Jiang Jingguo, uh, who had signaled the move to democracy. These were the last days of martial law. And yeah, there was a lot of pent-up anger in the country. Years of not being able to talk about 228, years of being punished for speaking Taiwanese at school, all these kinds of things. Mm. And also the government was not used to dealing with opposition, so they were kind of caught off guard. They were a bit worried about public opinion because elections were coming in December of that year. And yes, there were limited elections in martial law era Taiwan. And Premier Yu Guohua, he, he wants to turn the tide against the anti-DuPont movement, but not with some heavy-handed method. So he announces in early July, okay, the DuPont plant can't go ahead unless it has an environmental impact assessment and local concerns are addressed. So a way of uh, dealing with this, still pro-DuPont, but also trying to uh, placate the, the local residents. August 17th. The police blocked a planned trip by several busloads of Lugang protesters to other parts of Taiwan. There was a tense six-hour standoff in the heat, but eventually uh, diffused. Uh, and yeah, Taiwanese pragmatism at work. Uh, violence was avoided. And we must remember the political landscape was changing. The Democratic Progressive Party, or the DPP, was formed in September of 1986. Politicians and activists for other causes wanted to link up with the Lugang activities. But Lee, the guy in Lugang, right, he was clever. He didn't want to make this political. He wanted to keep it as a local issue. You know, Lugang people protecting Lugang livelihoods, Lugang health and their way of life. Later, after the election, so that's in December, Lee led a protest in front of the presidential office in Taipei. A small one, but the first since 1949. DuPont brought in a Zhanghua-born DuPont employee from the U.S. to win over you know, opinion, but it didn't work. At public meetings, DuPont spokesmen were shouted down, not even given a chance to make their case. And DuPont starts thinking, you know, maybe Lugang's too much trouble. Maybe we can look elsewhere. But either way, they wanted to protect their image. They spent money on brochures, advertisements trying to inform and win over the public. Ahead of the environmental assessment report coming in, Lee made a move. He got a permit for a March 8th meeting, and Lee told the 300-strong crowd that the DuPont plant was actually a cover for processing radioactive materials for nuclear weapons. 
<laughs> Which is insane unless you are a devout conspiracy theorist and then, you know, hey, it actually makes a little bit of sense there. <laughs> but he's telling people mm. the plant's going to be processing radioactive materials, which, um, yeah, like I said, you'd have to be pretty far out there to believe that. And I would say he's probably got this idea in his head, you know, inspired by the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Yes, Chernobyl, the worst nuclear accident in history, was the year before, April 1986. So after this meeting, the crowd, fired up by these new radioactive claims, went marching down Zhongshan Road, the main street, the main street in Lugang. They were blocked by 80 police in riot gear. You know, they got their shields, batons, and helmets. There was a standoff with these hot-headed protesters, many of them, you know, young men. They're against uh, riot police. Uh, and yet, that Taiwanese ability to diffuse the aggression, nothing exploded. Meanwhile, the government was dragging its feet on the environmental assessment. So after all this fuss in 1986, on March 12, 1987, DuPont announces it will not build a plant near Lugang. The small guys had won. A great story. At its heart, it's a story of small-town locals resisting big, bad, authoritarian government and a chemical multinational. But there's so much more to the story. In the book that we've been using for this episode, Rebellion in Lugang, there's an incredible admission from, remember that second movement leader called Nian? And he says, quote, let's be frank, DuPont was the injured party. It is true that we opposed construction of the DuPont plant. But if you look deeper, we were using DuPont for other ends. For so long, we had put up with absurd and intolerable government regulations, while Taiwan had no social movement that could fight back. Now, in the anti-DuPont movement, we were responding to this whole history of abuse of public authority, end quote. Amazing. Mm. But we don't need to feel too bad about DuPont. Huge corporations like these, they have options. <laughs> Indeed. They eventually built their plant elsewhere in Guayin, Taoyuan County, northern Taiwan. But they had learned their lesson and they had a campaign to soften opposition and inform the Taoyuan residents about the benefits and stuff, you know, so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Taiwan's environmental awareness would grow in the following years. And the Lugang dispute had convinced the opposition, the recently formed Democratic Progressive Party, that environmental issues were a winning way forward. And part of this green platform was being very anti-nuclear power. Mm, interesting that it goes back to this. Another immediate effect was the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency in August of 1987. And this agency actually had, you know, real teeth compared to its predecessor. That's all the time we have for today. John, you got a book recommendation, I'm assuming? Yeah, I'll just repeat the name of that book. Pollution, Politics and Foreign Investment in Taiwan, The Lugang Rebellion by James Reardon Anderson. Excellent. Don't forget to rate Formosa Files on Spotify and Apple. On Spotify, folks, we're only at 4.8, which, you know, I want to get up to a 5. And on Apple, we need lots more reviews. Come on. Mm -hmm. Some little praise, you know? Yeah. John's so humble. Just like, yeah. All right. I'm Eric Michael Smith. Thanks for listening. Bye. I'm John Ross. Bye. <laughs>